so the question is not either or. It's not whether or not we are spiritual versus whether we are material. And it's not, I try to withdraw from the material world. Of course, you can't sanctify anything that isn't material. But it's a question of emphasis and aspiration. It's a famous dispute. Is the Nazir Kadosh or is the Nazir Chote? And my answer to that question, and Chazal sort of is at least in one answer, is that it could be both. Right? It all depends on how it plays out, how far it's taken. But fundamentally speaking, you can be a Chote or you can be a Kadosh. Uh, and we don't aspire to be Chote. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is the Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. By way of introduction, I'd like to read a few psukim that we read on the Shabbat before this podcast was released, Parshat Ekev. It's in Parakhet Psukim Yud Aleph Tzidalad, chapter 8, verses 11 to 14. Hishamer lacha pentishkach at Hashem alokecha, levil tishmor mitzvotav umishpatav v'chukotav asher anochi mitzavacha hayom. Be careful lest you forget Hashem your God so that you don't keep his mitzvot, his laws and statutes, that I am commanding you today. Lest you eat and become satisfied, and beautiful houses you build, and you dwell on them. Your cattle and flocks will be increased, you will have increased silver and gold, and all that you have will increase. And your heart will grow haughty, and you will forget Hashem your God, who took you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Here we have Moshe Rabbeinu telling us, in no uncertain terms, that abundance is simultaneously a gift from God, as we say every day in Kriyat Shema, and a challenge that leads directly to forgetting God. Today's episode with Rabbi Jeremy Weeder is in some ways a sequel to the episode that I recorded three weeks ago entitled, the high price of Orthodox life, and the dangers of keeping up with the Goldbergs with Rabbi Avraham Leventhal and Rachel Critch. And in some ways, it's a second chapter of a conversation I had with Rabbi Weeder about 18 months ago in episode 99 entitled The Orthodox Community's Obsession with Materialism. I recommend that after listening to this episode, you listen to those two episodes as well. They dovetail nicely with this particular episode. Again, it's episode 99 with Rabbi Weeder and episode 168 with Rabbi Leventhal and Rachel Critch. The reason I'm talking about this again is because I believe that hedonism, materialism, and conspicuous consumption are becoming major issues that we need to confront as an Orthodox society. The fact that these also sometimes lead to ethical violations or illegality makes the problem even more serious. But I'd like to offer two caveats before beginning this episode. First of all, I'm pointing an accusing finger at myself as much as anybody else. This is a societal problem, and my claiming that we need to address it isn't meant to imply that I'm immune or innocent. We all need this reminder. Second, this podcast was scheduled some time ago and recorded without regard to any current events, occasions, or occurrences. If somebody thinks that I'm somehow releasing this today in response to any particular event or as a response to any particular person, that's simply a mistake. We'll get to the conversation in just a moment. First, subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum wherever you get your favorite podcasts, whether on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Audible, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And remember to rate and review. 
Nowadays, there is no better way to promote your company, your organization, your brand, or yourself than to have a podcast. As long as that podcast sounds great and is expertly produced, that's exactly what we do at JCH Podcast. So go to jchpodcast.com or write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com. You will be thrilled with the results. Finally, I have been gratified and honored by the positive feedback I've received for this podcast, both publicly and privately, including when people disagree with either me or my guest. Anytime someone takes the time to reach out, I appreciate it, and I'm very flattered. As you know, it takes a lot of time and effort to produce every episode of The Orthodox Conundrum, from the preparation, to the recording, to the post-production. There's so much more that I want to accomplish through this podcast, including live events and more. I value the community that we've created together, and I invite you to support The Orthodox Conundrum through our Patreon site. Go to patreon.com slash jewishcoffeehouse, that's patreon.com slash jewishcoffeehouse, and help us to create a positive, God-centered, halachic, intellectually honest, self-aware, accountable, and welcoming Orthodox Judaism. Rabbi Jeremy Weeder is a Rosh Yeshiva at the Rabbi Isaac Ohanan Theological Seminary of Yeshiva University, where he occupies the Joseph and Gwendolyn Strauss Chair in Talmud. He holds a BA from Yeshiva College, an MS from the Bernard Revel Graduate School of Jewish Studies, and a PhD from New York University in Hebrew and Judaic Studies, and was ordained at Reitz. He is a scholar-in-residence at Congregation Kila Yishirun in Manhattan, where he delivers the Dr. William Major Memorial Advanced Year in Talmud. Rabbi Jeremy Weeder, thank you very much for joining me once again on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here again. We discussed materialism in episode 99 about a year and a half ago. And because, unfortunately, we have not yet solved the problem, and that podcast certainly did not solve the problem of materialism in the Orthodox world, and if anything, perhaps, I would argue, it might be getting worse, I wanted to record a follow-up conversation with you to see if perhaps we can bring some additional light to this issue. So I'll open up with what I think the issue really is. I think, at least this is my anecdotal opinion here, but I feel that the problem is less that people don't know where the line is drawn for too much. They don't even know there's a line at all. Obviously, I don't mean everybody, but I mean many people in the Orthodox community who are otherwise Shomri Torah and Mitzvot. I feel that in many Orthodox communities, there may be no concept whatsoever that there's anything wrong at all with ostentatious overspending. In fact, I've seen books written by Orthodox rabbis with titles approximating something like business secrets of the Torah and the like. And to me, that's just anathema. It almost sounds like a Jewish imitation of the Christian prosperity gospel. So I'd like to ask you, Rabbi Weeder, do you agree with me that the situation may be spiraling and getting even worse or maybe even out of control? It's hard for me to judge whether that's truly the case. One thing I think which has proven to be a great disappointment, uh, many had hoped that because COVID had created uh, very limited smachot uh, and some people thought that was great. You didn't have to, you know, have a protracted process uh, and incredibly expensive affairs. You would limit the number of people you could have. So there was a hope that that would carry over. Uh, if there's one thing I think that's clear is that has not happened. Uh, we are back to where we were before, even if it's not worse than it was before, and maybe it is, uh, certainly it, it is not any better than it was before COVID. In terms of your suggestion that people don't have a sense that there is something wrong with ostentatious consumption. I don't know if you were to ask people the question point blank, whether they would say, no, I think there's nothing wrong. But I do think that if there's something that is driving this process, and I, I don't know if we spoke about this the last time, but I've been thinking about this a lot. That one of the issues in our community, and I think this is probably true across the entire Orthodox community, but it's certainly true in the modern Orthodox community, 
is that there is no concept of Kedusha. And I think that the roots of all the financial issues, strangely enough, begin with this particular issue. I was uh, been in a number of contexts where I've asked people, what does Kedusha mean? What, what is Kedusha? We all say sanctity. What does it mean, holiness? And the best I can get pretty much from anybody is the concept of precious, which is true. That is an element of famous Ramban. But that doesn't, when I ask people to elaborate on that, they don't really, they don't have a, an explanation of it. And I think that the reason why very few people have an understanding of Kedusha is because we are surrounded by a secular society in which Kedusha is not even a concept. If I may borrow the uh, the language or the terminology of Jonathan Haidt in The Righteous Mind and others, I don't know if this was his term, he talks about weird society, Western, educated, intellectual, rich, democratic, which is the societies that surround Orthodox Jews, both in America and even to a lesser extent, but still true in Israel. Uh, and in that world, there is no value of Kedusha. The primary rule is that if you're doing something and it doesn't hurt anybody else, it's okay. You can indulge as much as you want, as long as it's not infringing on somebody else's rights. You know, Even a, a fuller version of that is that if your utilization of resources means that others are really deprived, so that's wrong also. But beyond that, if you're not depriving anybody else, there are no limits on hedonism and materialism because you're not hurting anybody else. That is, in effect, secular Western culture. And unfortunately, we are very much a part of that. Now, what Kedusha means, what sanctity means, is that human beings are comprised of two parts. Uh, I'll call the angelic part and the animal part. The Gemara, I think, in Chagiga says that there are three ways that we are doma l'mal ha'asharis and three ways that we're doma to the behemoth. And the things that we're like a behemoth is that we eat like animals, we eat, drink like animals, we reproduce like animals, we defecate like animals. Those are basically our, our bodily functions, our physical material functions. The way we are like Malach Asharis is that we walk upright, we speak Balashana Kodesh, and we have das. So as human beings, we struggle with this dichotomy. And Kedusha means trying to place a greater emphasis on the angelic side rather than on the animal side. And what that informs the way we think about where we go about our entire life. What are my aspirations? If my aspirations are to be like an angel, so of course I have to take care of my physical needs. And we don't we don't negate it. We, this is not asceticism. But it means that consumption is, is sort of not even on my mind because those are not the important things in my life. My important things in my life is my, is my spiritual element, the, the piece of me that's a malach. But we live in a culture where, in, in a secular culture, there is no spiritual side in that sense. And I don't mean to say there aren't people who are ethical, but there is no sort of higher longing for some spiritual thing at the, at the expense of the negation of our physical. So if that's the entire mindset, of course, there's no room for restraint on consumption and pleasure seeking because there is no it's not a concept. It's not a value. And I think that we as a community have absorbed that deeply. Um, I would I would add one note, which is the one area in which I think it exists a little bit. And even though the, even that has been challenged in some ways is in the area of sexuality. It seems to be the only area where people think this. And again, I'm not sure they understand what Kedusha, what the right thing is there, but at least there's some idea of holiness with associated with it. But. Once the food is got kosher, you know, once the vacation doesn't involve Chilul Shabbos, then there's no sense of restraint because I want to be a little more like the malachim and a little less like the animals. Let me ask a little more about that, not to push back, but to understand better what you mean, because I'm thinking of Rav Soloveitchik in Ish Halacha, Halachic Man, where he talks about the negative aspect of what he calls mystical religion, 
he's referring primarily to Christianity, but he also says that he's talking about some Hasidic sects who emphasize spirituality at the expense of the physical world. He's not saying that we should be materialistic, but he's saying that we don't try to escape this world into an angelic realm. Instead, we should try to bring God down, what he calls Simsum, bring God down into this world and try to sanctify our physical world. I know you're not disagreeing with that, but I want to understand more precisely how what you're saying is effectively the same as that. So I would start by stating that the goal is not asceticism. It's not total withdrawal uh, from the physical world. Uh, in some sense, you can't have Kedusha if you don't have a physical world. In the same way the Malachi Asharis were told, the Torah is not relevant to you because you don't have any desires. So you don't have any parents. You don't have any of the elements of the physical world. So why would the mitzvahs be relevant to you? So the question is not either or. It's not whether or not we are spiritual versus whether we are material. And it's not, I try to withdraw from the material world. Of course, you can't sanctify anything that isn't material. But it's a question of emphasis and aspiration. It's a famous dispute. Is the Nazir a Kadosh or is the Nazir a Chotay? And my answer to that question, and Chazal sort of is at least in one answer, is that it could be both. Right? It all depends on how it plays out, how far it's taken. But fundamentally speaking, you can be a Chotay or you could be a Kadosh. Uh, and we don't aspire to be Chotay. You know, perhaps what the Rav would have understood is that the Chotay is the person who really withdraws from the physical world. That's not what I'm advocating. Um, I'm not advocating we don't make smachot. I'm not advocating that we don't take a break. We might take a vacation. Um, but even that can be suffused with Kedusha, depending on how it's done, or it can be suffused with excess. How can something like that be suffused with Kedusha? Why don't you give some examples of suffusing something which feels like a luxury with Kedusha? You can travel to various places in the world and witness God's creation, both his creation in the physical world, or you can witness his his creation of human beings and the, you know, so you can, a, a, a vacation can be something which can also be inspiring at the same time with the world of nature, the world of human creation, or it could simply be a place where you go to lie on the beach. And I'm not telling you it's terrible to lie on the beach at all, but lie on the beach and stuff your face with food. Uh, and you ask yourself the question, when you come back from vacation, how have you spiritually advanced? Even though I think it's very important to take a break, there's no such thing as taking a break from Avodah Hashem. You might take a break from your Siddharim, you might take a break from your work, but everything that you do is somehow supposed to advance you spiritually. There are different ways of advancing, and there are different times that call for different things. But even a vacation is not a vacation from Avodah Hashem. There is no such thing. I don't want to be overly sweeping. I don't want to indict anyone who shouldn't be indicted. And frankly, it's not my place to indict anyone because, of course, I'm guilty of this too. So that's my disclaimer. And now I'm going to indict people. I think that many people actually have what you just said reversed. They think of it as, I'm going on vacation, it's glot kosher, there are three minyanim a day, there is a shear if you want it, and therefore I have license to stuff my face all that I want because I already took care of the avodat Hashem. And that's not what you're saying, right? Correct. As far as I understand, when the Ramban talks about Kedusha, one of his expressions, I mean, it's so much relevant to context is he says that if the you only follow the prohibitions of the Torah, a person would find a, a space to be Zolo Vesove, to be a glutton and a, and a drunkard. So I, I don't think that the, ob the obligations of Kedoshim to you are suspended even for one second at any time of the day, any day of the year. You can, you can take a vacation within the context of Kedusha. People may think that way, but that you know goes back to a metaphor that I've used, I'm sure others have used as well, is that some people see halacha and maybe Judaism in general as a series of trees, as opposed to seeing a forest. And if you can't see the if you can't see the forest for the trees, 
there's something wrong with your Avodah Hashem. I was going to mention that. I'm going to get back to that metaphor in a moment, which you did mention in their previous episode. I thought it was very meaningful. I would almost argue, I don't know if you agree with me, I would almost argue that while it's possible that a person can have a very luxurious vacation and make a kadosh, you're putting a handicap in your way. In other words, you can have a simple event or vacation and make a kadosh. You could have an expensive and over-the-top vacation and make a kadosh. It's much more difficult to do it with the latter. I'm not saying someone shouldn't do it, but you've essentially put some roadblocks in your way to make it more difficult. I'll just cite something you also said in the previous episode. You mentioned then that either almost the nicest or the nicest wedding or most meaningful wedding you had ever been to was a COVID wedding that was arranged about 15 minutes before it took place, right before the New Jersey governor shut down everything in 2020. The lighting was headlights of cars in a parking lot, and you were the Masada Kedushin, and it was maybe, I don't know if there were 50 people there. The couple just wanted to get married before they weren't allowed to because of the strictures on public gatherings. To me, I'm not saying we should all have weddings like that. I'm not saying we shouldn't. But I think that's actually inviting in more Kedusha because you're not distracted by the things that take away from Kedusha. I think that's correct. You know, I, you, I, I might disagree with one, one statement. To make a lavish wedding might be very hard to do in the context of Kedusha. Really... I guess it depends, but of course it's a challenge. You're saying, can I consume excessively, but be kaddish at the same time? The answer might be almost no. Uh, you know, what what constitutes a lavish wedding might be partially dependent upon context, but in principle, I think a lavish wedding is almost, maybe not completely, almost, a, and with kedusha is almost a contradiction in terms. Let me ask about that metaphor again with the forest and the trees. Because even though I agree with you completely, it sounds so logical that we can't miss the forest for the trees, the trees being the specific prohibitions and requirements of Judaism, the forest being this massive structure called Torah Judaism as a whole, if I understand correctly. But at the same time, we are a halakhic society. People open up a shulchan aruch and look inside and they say, is this mutter or is it usher? Is there anything we can point to and say, look, Obviously, it's more of a general idea. But yes, also, in addition to that, here is a line in the Shulchan Aruch, here is a line in the Torah, here's a line in the Gemara that says you should not be overly consumed with materialism. I mean, the Ramban on Kedoshim Tiyu, I think, is the, and his interpretation of the, of the Sifra, the Torah's Kodim, is exactly that. Um, the whole, it's, I, mean, I think it, it's true in every single area of Halacha, where I think a point that's often missed by people. I don't know if I mentioned this the last time, but not in the context of even Ben Adam Lachavero or in the material when it comes to Shabbos. That the most challenging concept for modern Orthodox Jews, especially, is the concept of Shabbos Day. It's also the most essential one. You know, Uvda the whole, how to define it is not always simple. Um, and sometimes if we apply the test of I kind of know it when I see it, but that, you know, you can have a Shabbos, which isn't the Shabbos. Um, if you don't have this concept of Ovdin the Chol and something being Shabbistic or not. But I think the Ramban says this explicitly, you know, in the in Parshish Kedoshim. And I think it's, you know, I don't think more needs to be said than that. And I've just been reading actually this week in a book by Rav Amnon Bazak of the Gush, Nishuni Banai, a book about Torah Shabal Peh. He uses that exact example, but he puts it into Tanakh, talking about why Ezra and Nehemiah and also Yeshayahu were adding all sorts of things written in Tanakh that are not Malachot of Shabbat. They're talking about don't do this on Shabbos. He talks about urbanization back then and how they had to create new things in order to make Shabbos not just a regular day where you weirdly can't write, but everything else you can do. Mekachumemkar would basically destroy Shabbos if it were permitted. Okay. When we discuss materialism, at least in my mind, I think of people who have a lot of money. I think of people who are spending a lot and more power to them. Wonderful, they have money. That's a good thing, I think. Good for them. 
But it can also refer to something else, and I don't know if you'll agree with this, people who put an emphasis on what I'll call lifestyle. I know there was a magazine that came out a few years ago, I don't know if it's still being published, that talks about, you know, fine wines and for Jewish Orthodox men and I, I think that was Macher's and... magazine or something like that. Okay, yes, that, that is correct. And we were trying to figure out at the time, was that actually real or was that a satire? I think it was real. So but... I was also, and I even looked it up today, and apparently it was real. But to me, even if it's not about spending too much money, simply the emphasis on things, even if it's not overspending, the emphasis on getting a really good cigar or which I think is probably usher anyway because of other reasons, but leaving that aside, or a fine scotch or having a really nice suit. I'm not saying that I'm not a materialist person. I'm not trying to pretend that I'm something that I'm not. I also think there's a difference between caring about looking okay and even if it's not overspending wildly, putting too much of an emphasis on having a really nice watch or having a really nice suit. I'm just not sure what that has to do with Avodah Hashem or how we can even put that into the concept of Avodah Hashem. Well, I think it has nothing to do with Avodah Hashem. I think it has to do with acculturation. It's a little bit of a niyanachnu kechal hagoyim. There's a very, there's a difference between, I, I think that our goal, and uh, this is under the rubric of Tznius, our goal is to not stand out. Right? I shouldn't wear a suit. The Tamil can't walk out with a bag with a revav on it, with a stain on it. My clothing that I'm so aspire to are the things that just make me kind of fit in, not stand out, neither for the good nor for the bad. The aspiration to live a certain lifestyle, again, you know, many other areas I would point to where we adopt foreign values. We might say, you know, but Gentile influences. When it comes to materialism, it's kind of hard to put that only on non-Jewish society because we've been very good at that for a long time. Uh, someone, uh, a rav I know, sent me a piece in which the uh, Kedash Yitzchak of Yitzchak Arama was writing on, I think it's, it's in Yisro, on Lo Yelecha Elohim Achim Apanai, talking about Avodah Zarah, and he starts to talk about the Avodah Zarah of materialism, and he said in his day, it was only the Jews who were affected, but the Goyim around, they didn't seem to be concerned about it. Only the Jews were concerned about that. So I don't think we, this is, today, it's certainly obviously not in any way uniquely Jewish, um, but I don't think we can put this one only on the non-Jews, but I think that certain elements that are, you look around and say, oh, that's, you know, that's what the good life is around me. So I want the good life. You know, if they didn't have that mirror, that, 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 that you know, that looking glass, perhaps they'd figure it out themselves. I don't really know. Um, but the idea of wanting to live a certain lifestyle in this case is certainly being drawn from an outside society. Speaking of a looking glass, we've been talking about materialism per se, even if no one else knows about it. But with the world of social media and everybody looking in, the concept of conspicuous consumption. It's not enough that I go on a fancy vacation. I have to record every minute of it and tell as many people as possible about it, which is an entirely different issue. It's not just a matter of materialism, because I think I think that you would agree with this, that materialism is a problem even if no one knows about it but yourself. But here's an additional problem, which is I'm trying to show off, which apart from the obvious issue of tzniut, and not it also makes people feel bad and even can create a desire to ape that sort of behavior because I want to have that good life too. It's a never-ending arms race. So I, I don't think it was, I think it was in a different podcast that I, I made a suggestion, which was, unless I said this too with uh, on our last one, which is consume what you want to consume, but make sure nobody besides the people that are enjoying it with you find out about it. So no pictures to be shared. No social media posts, because I think that takes away two thirds of the enjoyment. If you really enjoy it so much and it makes your life so much better, nobody else needs to know about that. And one of the things I think that gets lost in this, the whole discussion uh, is a term my wife introduced me to. It's called hedonic adaptation, uh, which is when it comes to materialism and, and hedonism, 
when you get something, you enjoy it right now, but at a certain point you stop, it, it doesn't bring you the same enjoyment. And the only way to derive the enjoyment is to keep ramping up what you're doing, right? It, it is, it's not just with other people. It's the thing that I enjoy today, the food I enjoy today. Well, after I've had it for seven days for most people, it doesn't bring me that, you know, that, that, that pleasure is not enough. There's not enough sugar in it. So next time I need more sugar in it because you have to keep upping the uh, upping the ante. And so it's really a fool's errand. But but yes, I think that putting aside that question, uh, I, I think that being able to show other people uh, is an essential part of the experience because it's not as not, it's not as enjoyable if other people are not going to know how good I have. Some, someone told me, I didn't understand years ago, that somebody made a l'chaim you know, for their daughter and they spent $100,000. And I'm looking at this and I, I, I think like, this is nuts. And someone explained to me, you have to understand the person is in the world of finance. I don't think I'm Wall Street, but he needs to attract money. And so when he makes a, a, a l'chaim like this, that's signaling to others, you know, that's, it's really a business investment, not a, uh, it's not about materialistic consumption, although it does tell you something, you know, on, on its own. But there is a lot of consumption that is outwardly directed, not not inwardly directed. Well, let me ask you about that exact case. Obviously, I don't know that person, but let's go beyond materialism. Let's go beyond conspicuous consumption and just the idea of earning, quote unquote, too much money. Is there a problem inherently with whatever that number is, but earning too much, even if I don't plan on spending it. Let's say I plan on just putting it in the bank because I want to save for my children and their children and 10 generations worth. And therefore, I want to make another billion. Is that a problem, even if I'm not acting like a materialist? Um, that That's an interesting question. Uh, on a pragmatic level, I, I you know, there there's uh, those who are doing dafyomi like a week or two ago, there were the par- couple of blot that they wanted to skip. Uh, the Gemara is about all the refus and so on. Just skip it. After you finished Ashmedai, you want to go on past that. But if you did, you missed a gem. The Gemara there says that I think there are eight things that Miyutan is Yafa and Ruban is not so good. And one of the things is Osher. The truth is money is one of those things that not having enough is really can be really stressful, really bad. But you reach the point at which having too much actually is usually bad for people. It's not that I think that it's Usher to acquire it, it just has a negative impact upon their lives. If not their own lives, their children's lives, especially. And you, again, not it's not true for everybody, um, but you see how frequently it is is the case. So what I would say is this person who accumulates that money, it's almost inevitable. It's not going to sit walled off in a trust fund only with a small amount allowed to get out to make sure that the children, the grandchildren, great-grandchildren have just a little more so that, you know, they fall upon hard times so they can pursue the careers they would want to pursue that are more meaningful. You know, if you could actually guarantee that with the case, uh, which is probably definitely impossible, that I don't see what's so terrible about that. Uh, but the reality is it never works that way. So I, I wouldn't say so much it's a bad thing. It's a, it's a moral issue. Um, but in the same way, you don't want to poison yourself with any kind of poison. An excessive amount of money can be a poison also. There's a writer whom I enjoy named Greg Easterbrook. I don't want to quote him incorrectly, but he says something like this. If you win the lottery and win $10 million, it will make your life much better. If you win $500 billion, it will ruin your life. That's his claim. I think that's what you're saying as well. Yes. There's a certain degree of truth in that. There are a lot of stories you read about lottery winners who don't know how to handle the money that they receive. You see it most of the time. People become very wealthy and it often brings a lot of tsaros for them. And if not for them, but their children and their grandchildren. So. In theory, to squirrel away all the money in the world so your children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren 
can make easier choices in life and don't have to worry and can do productive things and choose careers that aren't as lucrative and do good things in the world. It's a nice idea in theory, but it never actually seems to work. Uh, so uh, I, I think that is certainly uh, certainly the case here. Let me ask about that when you talk about so they don't have to worry. And we're assuming that putting aside money, if you could theoretically do that, which is impossible, in principle, wouldn't be a problem. But when you say that, I think of a specific Gemara, Masech HaPrachot Yud. It talks about Chizkiah HaMelech, who hid away the Sefer Refuot, the Book of Cures. Now, exactly what that is, some say it was a book written by Shlomo HaMelech, which contained the cures to every disease. And according to Rashi, at least, the Rambam says very differently, but according to Rashi, Chizkiah HaMelech hid away this book with cures because people weren't davening anymore. They had too much security. And because they had too much security, they would no longer be Mavakesh Rachamim. They wouldn't ask God for his help. Again, the Rambam does not agree, and he says that can't be the reason. If they had the cures, of course you can use them. But Rashi and I believe the Ramban say it's about bitachon. So in the theoretical realm we're talking about now, that someone is not going to use it improperly, is putting away money for the kids, grandkids, and great-grandkids for the sake of security on this level a problem in lacking trusting God and instead trusting yourself? I don't think so. Firstly... I would observe that even with having money, there are lots of things that money doesn't solve. There are lots of things that one needs to pray for in this particular world. What, what money actually does is it absolves you of the need to worry about other people and being dependent upon other people. Now, I think about the Yonah, the Medrash that Rashi quotes about the Yonah, the symbolism of the olive branch, where the Yonah says that my, my mizono should be marurim biyad HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and not sweet biyad basar uh, So... You know, in theory, when you have someone who's a rav, who's a dayan, you want them to be financially independent. You want them to be a situation where they don't have to worry about money, so they don't have to worry about the balay din in front of them. So yes, of course, a person can have a lot of money and think kocham v'otsem yadi, but the odds are in those circumstances, the money isn't being just used so that they can sit and learn and be engaged about the Hashem. That money is going to be used in some other way that's not necessarily very productive. Uh, so, so yes, I mean, Again, I, I think that at the end of the day, we all prefer to be healthy. We don't say we want sickness so that uh, we can have to pray to God. Uh, and I think this is true is here as well. I mean, you know, Gvulyesh, if you have so much money, at a certain point, squirreling away means that things that need to be done now aren't being done uh, in the world. But the desire to be free of uh, pressures of Parnassa, of the, of the precariousness of Parnassa, don't think that's an inherent, I don't think we regard that as a bad thing. Okay, sounds good to me. I very much enjoyed the phrase you used before, hedonic adaptation, quoting your wife. It actually reminds me of something, a din in Tzedakah, that if a person was very wealthy and loses his money, we're supposed to give him enough money to get back to his previous lifestyle. So I would say, if I may, it's not only that you're no longer satisfied when you have the more expensive lifestyle. It's that anything less than that is less than you used to be. It's not that if you go back down, you'll be at the same level. If you're used to spending a regular budget of $100,000 a month on food and on luxuries, and then you go down to a more stable budget that most of us would understand, you're not at the same level as everybody else. You're actually much more miserable. So I think that's probably what's happening. They Mahsaro is the exact recognition of that uh, that once you've uh, addressed it to a certain level, so to fall below that feels like deprivation. Another problem, I think, in addition to what we've been mentioning, is a societal level, and this is going to affect people who are perhaps not materialistic at all, but it's simply because society's expectations go up in a way that is almost subconscious. When I was discussing this with my wife in advance of our conversation, Rabbi Weeder, she gave the example, and I don't mean to 
begrudge anybody anything, but the example of the shetel prices that go up, that once upon a time, a shetel looked like whatever it looked like. It had a certain basic price, and of course, you could get better, but there was a basic assumption of how much it would cost and how good it would look, I guess. This is not an area of expertise of mine, but so she tells me. Over time, shetels got nicer, more expensive, and as they got more expensive and more people bought more expensive shetels, having the old kind of shetel, which might not have looked as good is no longer really acceptable. It now looks maybe perhaps schlumpy for some people, which means that someone isn't materialistic, but now they still have to spend X number of dollars in a shetel much more than they would have in the past. That seems to be a problem that's just stuck into the system, almost impossible to get out of. Well, that, that is true in every single area. If you think about, if you were to go in the United States or in Israel and look at the kinds of housing that poor people live in, and even some, sometimes even rundown housing, not everything, but much of it would be like what wealthy people would have lived in 300 years ago. Uh, so there is, and presumably to build one of those things that people did 300 years ago, if the zoning laws didn't stop you somehow, right, you could to build a to build a small house with a couple of rooms with no plumbing and no electricity and no running water is probably pretty cheap, relatively speaking. If you go find a place where land is is, is inexpensive, another way of putting it is that poverty. Uh, up until a certain point is objective. You know, until you've met your needs of food, basic needs of food, clothing, and shelter, uh, poverty is an absolute scale. Once you reach a certain stage, it's all relative. You're poor if you look at your neighbors and they're all living in luxury compared to you. You feel that you're poor. Um, so that is, you know, I, I don't know what the solution to that particular problem is, um, but I think that exists in every single area. And I, I don't know what the answer is. In, like in some cases, it's pretty obvious. In other cases, I mean, you, 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 your wife picked a, a particularly sensitive area because uh, as opposed to saying eat a less expensive cut of meat for Shabbos dinner or during the week, you're asking, you're putting something on women to say, well, you should go out and feel, you know, it, it, it's the equivalent of, you know, again, I'm not uh, stereotypically, you go out and wear a, a cheap polyester suit. And that would be, that's essentially the, the equivalent ask. So yes, it would be nicer if people didn't keep raising the bar, and it is hard for people who don't want to feel like they look, you know, second, you know, uh, schlumpy was your word. Um, that, it's, that's a hard one. That's a really hard one. All right. In our last conversation about materialism, you said that while we certainly have a problem with that in the Orthodox world, part of the issue might stem from the high price of Orthodox life in general and the high expectations of Orthodox American life. And I'm not even speaking about vacations on Pesach. I'm talking about simply the fact that nowadays people, everyone buys a lulav and estrog. Nowadays, Pesach food is expensive and it's not a matter of trying to be luxurious. Just having a kosher Pesach is going to be expensive. And this sometimes means that people who are not overcome with consumerism nevertheless feel they simply can't survive unless they earn a very, very big salary. You mentioned last time something about knowing students who didn't want to become doctors or lawyers because they don't earn enough. And these are not students who necessarily are just into finance and materialism. They're just afraid of living an orthodox life. Can you expand upon that a little bit? I would say that that, that all those things, that details might be true. These are things that are more expensive. I think that issue boils down to really one, a separate one, which is not a materialism issue. It's the yeshiva tuition issue. Um, and that's a big difference between Israel and the United States. Uh, the the yeshiva tuition issue is is really a, a critical, physically existential one, and that has to be dealt with the way we fund our yeshivas. Because bottom line is, if Pesach food costs a little more, okay, so you pay spend an extra five hundred thousand five hundred dollars or a thousand dollars, and you, know, you can pick all your little things like that, and it's real money. But what, as soon as you go and look at the cost of yeshiva tuition, 
that that's what that's what dictates these choices. Nobody's choosing to go into business because they think medicine doesn't make enough money because they want to buy their own Louisville. I mean, how to buy Louisville should be the problem. Um, or, or, or it is or, a simple or, example, but still, or the Shmura yeah. matzah, which is a racket, has gotten so expensive. That's not why yeshiva tuition is the primary driver of that. Um, and that's not a materialistic choice for the most part. That's just an education. Uh, education is expensive. Good education is 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 not cheap. And in America, the only people typically who send their kids to private school, unless you're talking about poor people in Catholic schools, which is uh, has some analogies to us, but not exactly, are wealthy people. Uh, well, if you're if you're not wealthy in the United States, there's a very simple decision you can make. You move to a suburb, you buy a very small house, place that has great public schools, and you send your kids to school for nothing. You pay real estate taxes every year because that that's what funds most of the school funding comes from that. Um, but in America, people who are lower middle class, middle class, even sometimes upper class, don't pay private school tuition. Right? They, the, the ultra wealthy who need, you know, who need the Horace Manns or whatever, you know, whatever the schools are, they'll send their kids to private schools and they don't doesn't make a difference to them that they have to pay eighty thousand dollars a year like they barely even notice it um but we don't in this in the united states nor generally speaking people don't send to private school unless they're really super wealthy but we are in a community because of legitimate legitimate reasons it is crucial that kids be educated in a Torah environment uh, in a jewish environment um and that is a ridiculous ask just on from a logical perspective that's it's reasonable to want that but the financial ask is insane it's absolutely insane to expect people you know people are shocked you've been in israel a long time but when you tell somebody that if you make three hundred thousand dollars at Bergen county and you have four kids you're probably barely making it you're lucky if you're saving for retirement even and we're not talking about taking nice vacations um and you you tell that to people it's like that's crazy yeah, but that's just the arithmetic, right? If you have to earn $150,000 pre-tax just to send your four kids to yeshiva, and I'm not choosing, not, I'm not picking not the expensive, expensive schools, you know, the more sort of standard price of yeshiva, of elementary and high schools. If you have to earn $150,000 before you get to anything else, well, then figure out how much you have to earn to pay for your housing, which is not our fault that it's gotten so expensive. And to pay for pretty much, you know, your food, your clothing, and so on, it starts to add up real quickly. That uh, that that three hundred thousand dollars, I think. I'm not sure. I think you can make it on three hundred thousand dollars, but you're not going to have a whole lot of of, of of spare, you know, income after that. And you want to save for retirement and do all those things. So it's um, so I I think that is the primary you know, primary issue. If, if people didn't have to pay yeshiva tuition, then they could choose all sorts of different professions. Um, and it would be it wouldn't be such a struggle. Wow, that is terrifying. And I guess that's yet another reason that I'm so lucky that we live in Israel, where of course we still have tuition, but it's nothing, nothing compared to what you're talking about. I know what I know what Hebrew University tuition is at least, and that that's not Yeshiva Day School, but someone I believe it's approximately ten thousand shekel, and and you tell that, and you take three 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 years, you know, for your degree, and you tell someone thirty thousand shekel, and you do the math, and it's like. That's like one semester of Yeshiva Day School tuition in the United States for your entire college education. Forget what college has come to cost in the United States. Um, but that they say that you know, the line people say is that the that Yeshiva tuition is the most effective agent for two things. Number one, Aliyah. Number two, uh, family planning. I mean, that's a very sad statement. At the same time, I wonder if it's only exacerbated by the fact that with advances in medicine, and I received a text from my friend Rabbi Mark Trencher about this a few days ago, with advances in medicine, it means on the one hand that 
family planning is actually more of an option than it was in the past, but it also means that if people want Bezrat Hashem, they can try to have larger families than was possible in the past, which means more mouths to feed and more tuition to pay. Correct, but you, you want to be able to put food on the table and uh, you, you do the arithmetic there and it's not hard to see you know, that every additional child that you're going to be supporting, forgetting about any of the other expenses means another $30,000 in your in peak years. It's not the entire life, but in your peak years of, of tuition. And talking about how people are pressured. So right now we are talking about legitimate concerns leading people to try to have more lucrative professions. But I'm going to ask you about something else, which is much more, it's not even controversial, it's much more upsetting, I would say, which is the fact that, and I mentioned this in a recent episode, there are more and more Ponzi schemes and even legal but unethical business practices taking place in perhaps the financial sector among Orthodox Jews. I spoke to a lawyer maybe about a month ago who works in the religious community and who deals with financial issues. And he said to me literally every single day he sees another example of a pyramid scheme coming to light. And as I said, it's not just those which are necessarily officially illegal. There are also all sorts of other things that are coming to light where people are making promises of very, very high returns which aren't sustainable. Maybe it's not illegal technically, but it's certainly unethical. And I wanted to ask you about this problem because I have a feeling that it certainly is fed by the high cost of living. It's not just, as it says in Kohelet, Oiv Kesef, Lois Ba Kesef, someone who loves money will never be satisfied with it. That's part of it, but it's also a matter of once you get used to that that addictive idea of I need more and more money, I can never have enough, I can never really be secure, it leads to these problems. My funny story in this is I was at a wedding after I did the, the OU's Kosher Money podcast. And somebody approaches me at the wedding and introduces themselves. I don't, I don't know that I've met, never met them before. And they said that they think they're like a special agent for the IRS. And my first response is, I paid my taxes. But he was coming <laughs> over to thank me. But he said, but he works in a division. And he's the only, I don't know if he's the only Jewish person, the only Chovesh Kippah. And when all this stuff comes up, everybody turns to like, like, what's going on here? Now, I don't know. I, I don't know whether there's any more of this in the from community than there is, you know, in the in the outside world. There, there's no shortage of hucksters and con artists and people peddling illegal, legal, unethical schemes and so on. There, there's uh, th- there's no shortage of that. Of course, it's more upsetting when a from Jew does it because I mean they're not from, but they're sensibly social socially from. Or I should say they're not observant. They're from. Uh, right. I don't when Rabbi Blau was on this podcast, he differentiated between Ehrlich and Frum. Okay, I like that. Um, so I, I don't know. There's no question it creates pressures. But in order, I think, to engage in those kinds of schemes, I think you have to be an entre- entrepreneurial spirit. You can be an entrepreneur who is who is really who's straight and really does interesting things and, and makes money. Or you could be someone who does those kinds of things. The personality that's required to be selling stuff to other people is the same personality. Most people are not entrepreneurs. So I don't know. I mean, I think that I know I'm certainly not. I had none of that particular spirit in me. And I think most people probably don't. So it's hard to know. Is it just that we see it and it strikes us, you know, that those are those people, but because they're from and they're doing it, you know, would they be not doing that if, if it weren't for these things? It's hard to say. Um, you know, one one of the, and I don't know the answer to this question, and I, I, I don't think it's, I don't think this is limited to the yeshivish world, um, but in a world where you don't have as much opportunity for professional, the professions, because you don't have an education, it may make that a little harder, a little more likely, but it's hard to really know. I, I think it just, it just stands out 
because they're from, and I, but I don't know that this is any more the case in any part of the community or the rest of the world. And, and some people, it's just who they are. I think you, you can go Googling in the news. Some, there was somebody from the Lakewood community, I think, who was pardoned by President Trump, someone who engaged in one of these schemes. And apparently he has now been rearrested. And ironically, you know, the people who get hurt the most are the friends and family because they're the ones that con artists usually take in. Right. So, you know, that 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 that's not doesn't fit in any of these categories. I think there are people who are just not honest. It doesn't matter what brand of religion, what what stripe within religion. I, I don't know that this how much this, you know, whether this is really the primary driver it could be, but I, I don't know. And I have no idea either, obviously. I, I think you're touching on an important point when you, I guess I express it as the difference between from an Ehrlich, between someone who's quote unquote religious versus someone who's honest and upright and upstanding. But I think that part of the problem, if I can suggest it, and I don't mean that Orthodox Jews have this more often than anybody else, I do wonder if, however, as a community, we need to remember and remind everybody, maybe we already are, I just don't know, but remind everybody that financial crimes or even, again, unethical financial practices, even if they are technically legal, are no different than being Michal Shabbos or eating pork or anything else that has to do with the ritual realm. We all know cases of from people whose names are on buildings and who got their money and spent time in jail for having acquired that money. This is a known problem. And as long as we emphasize that Frumkite is the key, your ritual observance, and someone can still be a member of the Frum community, even if he's a white-collar criminal or unethical in business practices, we have a real problem. I have a good friend named David Shimmel, I love Shalom. He died a couple of years ago, and I spoke about him in an episode of this podcast at that time. This is just an anecdote, and I'm not claiming it's indicative of something bigger, but I think it does represent an attitude problem which might be pretty common. At least it seems to me it may well be a real issue. David Schimmel was the only not-from employee of a certain financial firm in New York. And the owner of the company used to yell at him because he didn't go to Mincha. They would say, we're all going to Mincha in the building, and David wouldn't go, and they would give him a hard time about it. Okay, here's the anecdote. One day a guy showed up at their office to fix the phone. I don't know what their company was, but the problem was he came in and he said to the owner of the company, I can't fix your phone because let's say it's MCI and I'm Sprint. It was like no, 20 years ago, whatever it was. And they said, come on, you know, can you do it? He goes, no, I can't. I'm not allowed to fix it. It's the other company. The owner of the financial firm and his partner who was there with him said, if I give you a hundred bucks, will you change the phone lines? And he goes, no, I can't do that. And he left. He didn't take the bribe. So then they started talking about how this guy thinks he's so kado, she's so holy, and they started complaining about that. My friend was listening to the whole thing on the side. And then the partner said to the owner, he said, what happens if that guy says you tried to bribe him? He goes, oh, very simple. I'll just say that's not what happened. He told me he would only do it if I gave him $100 and I refused. Obviously, putting this guy's job in jeopardy for the sake of covering up their own bribe and lie. I don't know what happened beyond that. But these are people who are, quote unquote, from and as long as we emphasize Frumkite at the expense of Ehrlichkeit, I think we might continue to see problems like this. And please let me be clear about this, because I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. I don't think anyone who hears the story is going to say, oh, that's okay. Of course they're going to say that's terrible, that's not the way a Jew should act. Of course everyone is going to say that. But the emphasis that we have in our community, or perhaps the allowances that we give in certain situations when we know somebody has been unethical in business and yet... We don't treat him the same way as somebody who might drive to shul. I think that's the problem. It's almost like Natan Hadavi saying to David HaMelech, Ataha Ish. We don't necessarily realize that we're guilty of some of these attitudes. 
you know, I, I guess this is a little field from far afield from where we started. I see that in main Lenin. On the one hand, it's true. We don't put much emphasis on it. But on the other hand, I'm not sure for how much it would matter. Uh, if, if you've ever read Nevi'im Achronim, this is not a new phenomenon. It's not unique to Judaism. Um, for for many, many reasons, there is a very strong tendency, I think, amongst religious people to emphasize the ritual over the ethics. And I don't mean to suggest that non-religious people are more ethical on average. I have no, no reason to think that's the case. You would hope that religious people would be more ethical, so you would think, but it's not. The reality is it's never been that way. Ehrlich people are Ehrlich people uh, the way typically they're raised. I bet you if you look at the family life, that matters more than what they were taught out of a book in school. The modeling is much more important. Um, you know, there's there's this expression that goes, if only Lotignovu were a footnote in Mishnabur instead of a Pasuk in the Torah, more from <laughs> Jews would observe it. Um, it. It's not a new phenomenon. It's, uh, you know, it, it is, I, I am reminded of the story of, to make it very short, of, uh, of a, of a person who was going to jail, a non-from Jew, who who did business with Hasidim, and he was going, he was being disbarred, and he was going to jail because of business with Hasidim, but he used to raise money for their causes. He used to give money. And so someone asked his his uh, his non-Jewish daughter-in-law, asked her, like, if he knows that these people are crooked, why does he give to their institutions. He's going to know that these aren't really religious people. So her response was because he thinks that religion is religion and business is business. And right? mm-hmm. so that's a, doesn't matter what stripe of firm kite you're in or what stripe of religion you're in. I, I think that's a very, very common phenomenon, unfortunately. Yeah. I want to get back to our main topic, but I wonder if, at least perhaps in some of the more right-wing Orthodox communities, there's an attitude of the people outside of our community are the peasants who want to kill us, sort of a holdover from living in Eastern Europe, where that may very well have been true. And that attitude has remained with them. The goyim are the goyim, and if you can cheat them, more power to you. I'm not justifying it at all, but I wonder if psychologically that may be where it comes from. We know about people who cheat on their taxes. We know about people who don't get married legally so that they can register as single moms and be eligible for all sorts of benefits like food stamps. Maybe that's where it's coming from. I don't know. If, if you want, I, I have a brief comment. It, it, some of that may be in play, but I think there's something also to consider, which I've only really encountered recently. Um, I don't remember the name of the book, but he's in the Jonathan Haidt model. Last name is Henrich, I think. Uh, and I, I, it's interesting. He talks about what we what I refer to as weird societies versus other societies. It's important to remember that if you, if you go to most non-weird societies, uh, and that's almost the entire world, people regard cheating a member or lying to a member of the in-group very differently than lying or cheating a member of the out-group. Um, that's very foreign to, that. that is one of the milos actually of secular culture, secular Western culture, the idea, which is really rooted in Judaism, the idea that it doesn't make a difference to the, with whether it's your in-group or the other, their basic ethical obligations you have towards everybody. Um, but it is very common to find that in cultures where they really distinguish. In fact, years ago, I was reading a book called, I think, Legal Systems Other Than Ours, um, talking about not not halacha, but American law, American civil law. And there was a chapter on Islamic law and Sharia, and there was a footnote. And I saw something amazing. I think you'll understand immediately why I was amazed by it, where a an imam or whatever their scholar was asked a shayla about cheating a non-Muslim. And the imam said that even if it might be technically okay, it's going to give Islam a bad name which made me understand it's like, oh, that's actually the more normal mode of human interactions is the idea of distinguishing because many of these people would never cheat their own. 
I mean, some of them would make no mistake about it. But the when you hear an attitude expressed of, oh, you know, because it, it, it's not part of their their in-group, that's been the human norm. I think the Torah's idea of Tzalem Kim and more broadly constructed that certain kinds of things are due to every human being, you know, that doesn't make a difference whether they're Jewish, not Jewish, you know, what group they're part of. Um, it, it's not always fully realized uh, amongst amongst uh, our brethren. Um, but but I think that this type of an attitude is pretty common, actually, when you step outside or a little weird bubble. So. Okay, interesting. I like that, the weird bubble. I hear it. Before we come to a close, let me ask you a question about what are some major examples? You mentioned yeshiva tuition. That obviously, it's a good thing you're paying for, but back into materialism again. What are some of the things where things have really gone off the rails, so to speak? Can you give some examples where you have seen that we really have to, as a society, try to rein it in some specific events or occurrences or things that we do? So perhaps I, I can share with you, and it's anecdotal, but it's pretty funny that a student of mine recently sent me, if you let me just to pull it up here, he sent me this advertisement. It said, see them every hour. If you're not eating meat, are you really a Ben Torah? Join the thousands who can, coincidentally finished a Masechda during the nine days. The bottom brought to you by Nine Days Done Right LLC. Text, certain phone number for more details. So I looked at this. I wasn't sure. My wife said to me, that's, that's a parody, a satire. right? Yes. So I wrote back to my student who's a rub, and I said, this is a satire, right? He said, yes, it is, but it's on the mark. And he's 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 a rub. I won't say where. And he said he has three seumim to attend during nine days, lavish catered affairs. And I'm thinking to myself, you can't go without meat for the, for the Eight days live. It's really that hard. It's not camps that need to feed. They feel they need to feed the kids protein because the most of it's sugar and carbs. So one meal a day, they feel the meat is the only way to do it. So they get soon. We're talking about your, your balabatim. You, you, there's not enough food to eat. You could you could stuff yourself with Chilean sea bass and fancy tuna, you know, and sushi and so on. You need to have meat. Like it's kind of stunning. So. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's that says it all. Can you give some other examples of where areas that you think we have to cut back? You know, vacations. Uh, someone you know has, has told me that, in, and, and this really makes life hard for a lot of people. That in he gave me an example in the Syrian community in Brooklyn. So aside from living living there, which is pretty expensive to start with, you need to have a summer home and deal. But that's not enough. You have to go to Aruba for for Pesach or circus, whatever it is. And if you don't, you're not going to be the social circle. Your kids aren't going to get you to that, oh, yeah. That's And and there, that's a community. My understanding was a lot was into real estate business and so on. But those opportunities are not there as easily. And for the next generation, it's a tremendous squeeze. You reach a certain point where it really becomes just a struggle to survive if those are the standards that you set. You don't need to take, you know, a, a, you, don't need, you don't need to have a second summer home. Um, you don't need to go to Pesach for Aruba, none of those things are necessary. You know, I always tell people, again, there are sometimes people don't have enough space, but if it's not that you can't fit the people in your house, it's much, much cheaper to pay someone to come in and clean your house from top to bottom and to have your food catered for one of the local establishments. There will be a fraction of the price of going away for Pesach, which, you know, someone told me they were, they were their wife wanted to go away this particular year. And so he looked into some of the programs, but many of the programs, it was like, was it, was it ten thousand dollars a head or something like that? Insane, absolutely insane. It was twenty, maybe it was twenty thousand for a family of four. It was, it's like, are you crazy? Right? It would cost you a tiny, minuscule amount to go have Pesach in your house. If, and again, because of economic demands, more and more women are working full time and probably carrying more than half their share 
of the household work. And now it's hard for them to make Pesach. I get that. Okay. So, you know, you don't have to spend uh, 30 or $40,000 to take your family, you know, away. Go spend $2,000 and have everything, $3,000 and have everything brought in and you have no problems. I mean, some of these things as well are things which are on the whole positive things. My wife is talking to me also about people who, again, this is a great thing. When their kids get married, it's expected they'll go to Israel for a couple of years and they'll support them living in Israel for a few years. And that's a wonderful thing. The kids are learning. Great. On the other hand, if you can't afford that, then you're sugbet. You're already going to get not as high quality, quote unquote, shiduchim. You're going to be on the second tier, the second tranche. You know, that's nothing that unfortunately, that's nothing new. I know it's a very unromantic notion. Uh, but if you talk to anybody who's involved in the world of Shiduchim, certainly on our end, the modern Orthodox and, you know, in those parts of Shiduchim, it, it's always in Vehagefen, in Vehagefen. And the only question is what your measuring stick is. Uh, so uh, uh, so I have w- observed so many times that it's rare that wealthy people, uh, a wealthy person marries from a very poor background. I, I think that would make more sense, obviously. You know, depending on this nature, if, if it's if Shiduchim are not arranged, that people meet, you can't do anything about that. But I always think the opposite; it would make more sense that way because this way, you know, you could distribute the the wealth throughout the world. It would be a better world. But that <laughs> is true. You have to understand. I, I I know people don't like to hear this. Dating is a market. It's exactly what it is. And 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 the truth is, I, it's 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 not a way to relate to human beings because if I am a tzaddik, I should marry a tzaddikus. We all understand that. Um, but since we don't have a measuring stick of what a tzaddik is, people often use other measuring sticks. So wealth is a measuring stick. Rabbinic status is a measuring stick. Uh, physical appearance is a measuring stick. Right? If, if that's what you value and you have one of those qualities, you're going to say, well, why should I marry someone with none of them? That That is the way, that's the way it has always, always worked. Uh, the, the metrics, the measuring sticks might have changed, but we shouldn't pretend otherwise. Uh, it would, we'd be lying to ourselves saying it's any, anything different. You know, in a, in a world, which is a very small world, maybe in the modern Orthodox world, where kids just might happen to meet, you probably get a little bit uh, more of that. But if you think about it, if you're in, in the world of Shidduchim and you're a family with a, a son or a daughter who is this, that, the other thing, you don't want them marrying somebody who is doesn't those things. That's just, uh, we fool ourselves with, uh, you know, Victorian notion of this romantic marriage. I mean, I'm all into love and romance between husband and wife, but you, we'd be fooling ourselves thinking that that's the, actually the way the world works. So sorry for that depressing thought there. But Then in that case, let me ask you one final question about everything we've been speaking about and more. Is this just spitting into the ocean? Lamai Nafkamina, is our conversation, Rabbi Weider, a venting session where we can complain about materialism and talk about conspicuous consumption, but in practice, nothing is going to change. Use the word always. Dating has always been a market. All of these things, whenever Kleistral has had affluence, you mentioned the Vimachronim, this has always been a problem. So is complaining about it going to do anything? And if so, what can be done? Or maybe the answer is, we really can't. We just have to know for ourselves. We shouldn't act that way. But Kleistral is doomed to always have this problem. What's your feeling? I, I hate to be the pessimist in accordance <laughs> with my name. Um, my wife often jokes and says, maybe she's not joking, that my parents somehow had Ruach HaKodesh when they named me Jer- you know, Yermiyahu. I would say there are two functions to it. One of them is that there are people who need chizuk. There are people who do. It, it might be that it's only one out of every 10 people listens, um, but both the people who are capable of making the choice and might make a better choice, and also the people who don't have that choice. They don't have the choice of listen luxury, but they want validation, legitimately so, that what other people are doing actually isn't the right way to be, and they for themselves shouldn't feel you know less lesser for that. Um, there is a second issue also. Um, you, you could imagine... 
I, I often say that I have no expectations anybody's going to listen to me because I don't think I'm greater than the Nevi'im. And in the Nevi'im spoke, they had God as their direct backers. And it doesn't look like if you read Yirmiyahu, it doesn't look like too many people were listening to him. Um, but Rav Lichtenstein, Zechron once observed um, that there are two different obligations. One is tochacha and one is macha. The purpose of tochacha, the purpose of rebuke, is only when the person actually could listen, when it might be effective. Um, if it's not going to be effective, there's no mitzvah of tochacha. But the mitzvah of macha is a different issue. The mitzvah of macha is that sometimes something has to be said, even if people aren't going to be listened, because a certain voice has to be heard. It has to be stated on the public record. And even if nobody listens. So I think in our particular case, there might be a few people who do listen. There are certainly a lot of people who will feel better for it and validate and realize it's not that they're seeing the world wrong. They are seeing the world right. And then beyond that, I think we have an obligation to say this is wrong. And even if nobody's going to listen, even if it's a kol koreba midbar. That wasn't pessimistic at all. That was very positive. I actually am uh, I'm impressed with the optimism of that statement. Well, it's pessimistic because I don't know that the whole world's going to change, but nonetheless. Okay, well, we can hope, at least perhaps can put something in motion here. Before we end, I just want to say to you that right before we began this recording, you mentioned that right around now, your son is having a l'chaim in honor of his engagement. And I just want to say mazel tov on behalf of uh, everyone listening. That's really a nice simcha. Thank you very much. And I want to thank you for joining me again. It's always an honor and so enlightening to speak to you, Rabbi Weider. I enjoy it so much. I get so much out of it, and I'm sure it's true for everybody listening as well. So thank you again. My pleasure. I'm a pretty great multitasker. I can wash dishes and do laundry. I can roller skate while walking my dog. I can even order lunch while doing my homework. But I can't use my phone while driving. A distracted driver is one of the leading causes of death in the United States. So when it comes to driving, please, don't be a multitasker. Don't drive distracted. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.